Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department at Providence College. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. All the views you hear on this podcast are mine and those of my guests. This week, the United States House of Representatives will begin public hearings in its investigation into the possible impeachment of President Donald Trump. For the past several weeks, the House Intelligence Committee has been taking confidential depositions of those with knowledge of whether or not the president pressured Ukrainian officials to open an investigation into a possible 2020 election opponent, former Vice President Joe Biden, in exchange for continued U.S. military aid and a Ukrainian presidential visit to the White House. In light of this new public stage of the impeachment inquiry, I thought it would be timely to explore what impeachment means, what the U.S. Constitution says about impeachment, what history can tell us about how a possible impeachment of President Trump compares to other impeachment processes, and what might be the trajectory of the current inquiry. Let me make clear from the outset that what we're going to do here is not make an argument for or against impeaching President Trump, but rather take a look at the process around impeachment and the arguments on both sides about the situation. For this conversation, I've invited two of my political science colleagues whose respective professional expertise provide different perspectives on the process, Professors Joe Camerano and Adam Myers. Professor Camerano currently serves as my successor as political science department chair. He earned his PhD in political science from Rutgers University in 1993 and joined the PC faculty in 1997. Joe teaches in both the political science department and in the public and community service department, which he is also chaired. Uh, Joe is one of the ablest teachers in our department, teaching courses on the presidency and public administration. Uh, one further feather in Joe's cap is that uh, in 2003, Joe was the first recipient of the college's campus-wide Achino Teaching Award. I think that was a signature achievement of which he ought to be very proud. His expertise is in the area of presidential scholarship, and he is currently working on a book manuscript on the postmodern presidency. Professor Myers, who joined us for a couple of podcasts last year, is in his sixth year on the PC faculty, joining us after earning his PhD at the University of Texas in Austin. His specialties are political parties, elections, American political development, and state politics. Adam has published numerous articles in state party competition and state political institutions. Like Joe, he is an excellent teacher in his courses on political parties, interest groups, comparative state politics, American government and politics, and policy analysis and advocacy. So, welcome to the podcast, Joe, Adam. Delighted to be back, Bill. Great to be here. All right, so the House has begun this inquiry into the impeachment of President Trump. The inquiry was formally launched several weeks ago, and they've been holding these hearings in the Intelligence Committee, and this week uh, they're going public. So to start off, maybe we need to remind our listeners a little bit about the impeachment process. What does the Constitution say about impeachment? Uh, why is it happening in the House of Representatives, et cetera? So one of you want to tackle that sort of background uh, question? Adam, go ahead. Okay. Well, um, so the Constitution doesn't say a whole lot about impeachment, but what it says is pretty telling. So first of all, it says that the president, the vice president, and all other officers of the United States can be impeached and removed from office for, quote unquote, treason, bribery, and all other high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, it says that the House of Representatives has the power of impeachment, and the Senate has the sole power to try all impeachments, um, but that two-thirds of all senators have to vote to convict somebody who's been impeached in order for them to be removed from office. It says that when the president is impeached, the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court shall serve as the presiding officer in the Senate trial. And lastly, it says that the end result of the impeachment process can go no further than removal from office and disqualification for further offices. 
right? Um, but that a person who's been impeached and removed from office can still be indicted and tried in a normal court of law afterwards. So that's basically what the Constitution says about it. So, so that last bit, Adam, strikes me as particularly important. So the only penalty for a conviction in the Senate, having been impeached in the House, is a removal from office. And disqualification from future offices, potentially. Right. So one is not a criminal if convicted in the Senate of high crimes and misdemeanors, right? This is not a criminal proceeding. That's exactly right. So this process looks kind of like a regular legal process in certain ways, but it is also quite distinct from it in other ways. And it's important to bear that in mind, right? Sometimes, especially in the media coverage about um, this impending impeachment process concerning President Trump, we see this tendency to conflate the traditional legal process that somebody would go through um, if they're accused of a crime with the impeachment process. And while they're related, they're not the same. Right. You want to add anything to that, Joe? No, I, I think Adam did a great job. I, you know, the entire section of on the presidency is a total of four pages, and about half of that is on the Electoral College. And so he's right. There's just a skeletal set of guidelines for this, which means it's a, it's a political decision that needs to be made uh, by the House and then by the Senate, with the sort of basic framework being spelled out in the Constitution. So the reality is impeachment is whatever the House and the Senate say it is, um, particularly the House for, for indicting, so to speak. Right. Well, let, let's talk a bit about this bribery, treason, and high crimes and misdemeanors. So what does that mean? That sounds very weird to me. High crimes and misdemeanors. Right. Well, the reason it sounds weird is because it was the result of a compromise, just like almost everything else that's in our Constitution. Um, so in this case, right, in the case of the clauses in the Constitution regarding impeachment, um, the compromise was between those delegates to the Constitutional Convention who favored a powerful executive who was independent of Congress and those who were more suspicious of executive power. And originally, in the Constitutional Convention, there's actually a proposal to have impeachment um, essentially move forward for uh, the cause of maladministration and neglect of duty. And the folks in the convention who are in favor of a strong executive, they don't like that language, right, because they think it's too broad. And they think that that sort of broad language will make a president too dependent on Congress, you know, because a president would think, well, if I do something that Congress doesn't like, they'll just impeach me for maladministration. Yeah, it almost sounds like uh, the president could be impeached for making a mistake. Right. Precisely. So um, the folks who favor a strong executive in the Constitutional Convention, they kind of moved to strike that language. And there's a committee called the Committee on Detail in the Constitutional Convention, which is sort of charged with ironing out some of the language that the convention originally comes up with. They replace that language of maladministration with treason and bribery. Um, but the delegates who are suspicious of executive power, they push back against that language. They say that language is too narrow and that there's a whole host of uh, things, dangerous things that presidents could do that, that they should be held accountable for and that they should be potentially removed from office for, that the terms treason and bribery don't capture. Um, and so in one of these classic compromises, um, one of the delegates from Virginia named George Mason, he proposes to add other high crimes and misdemeanors to the list of things that presidents and others can be impeached for. And so that language kind of is supposed to hit that sweet spot. It's supposed to be broad enough for the folks who are suspicious of the executive and narrow enough for the folks who favor strong executive power. But of course, what ends up happening is that for the rest of American history, we're constantly debating what that term means. Yeah, George Mason. So you're a big George Mason fan, I understand, Joe. So well, I'm, I'm, tell, tell us a little bit about that fellow and why he was so important here. Well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an odd person who teaches the presidency. I've always been suspicious of strong, expansive presidents and presidential power. And so even though I, I've taught the course now since the mid-1980s, I've always been skeptical about putting too much into the presidency. And I think George Mason 
probably encapsulates that better than any other framer. He refused to sign the Constitution in part because he thought the national government was too strong, but also he thought the chief executive was still too strong despite the language that he got in. And so for me, George Mason was the guy who identified back in 1787 the fundamental problem that we now face, and that is we have a system that has a president who is too powerful. And so for me, he saw this coming. Uh, and so in that way, I admire his vision on that, much better than even James Madison and definitely than Alexander Hamilton. So the Constitution set up this, this process. It defined criteria for impeachment, which are very broad okay, and, and vague. Uh, they clearly made impeachment not a criminal process, but a political one which Congress has responsibility for, right? It's interesting that the only involvement of the judiciary is that the uh, Chief Justice presides over the trial in the Senate, but this, uh, and, and impeachments are not appealable to the judiciary, right? That is true. Um, everything that you just said is true, although it's important to bear in mind that, you know, as we said before, impeachment is supposed to go forward for treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. So the fact that that word, crimes, is in the clause on impeachment has opened the door for people throughout American history to make the argument that the only impeachable offenses are crimes, that is, violations of the criminal code. And so this is actually one of the big points of debate um, that has consumed people you know, in almost every impeachment episode involving a president maybe every impeachment episode involving a president that we've had, whether or not in order to be impeached, you have to have actually committed a crime. Yeah, but the other, the other side of that argument is that high crimes are not necessarily crimes, correct? Well, yeah. That, that in, the, in the English tradition, this language was, was taken straight from the British tradition. And then, in fact, the idea of high crimes was that these are acts that are committed by people with high responsibilities. And so these are not crimes like you or I could commit, right? Uh, only somebody like a president could commit a high crime. That's right. And if you look at, you know, what a lot of the founders said right after the Constitution was uh, ratified, it certainly seems that they had in mind, you know, essentially what you're referring to, political crimes, you know, neglect of duty, betraying, you know, the trust of the American people, um, putting the country in harm's way, things that wouldn't necessarily be um, direct violations of the criminal code. But what seems to have happened over the course of American history is we've kind of adopted over time a more kind of legalistic understanding of what impeachment means. And you can see that reflected today in what some of President Trump's defenders are saying. You know, they, they seem to be wanting to shift the conversation in certain cases to the question of whether um, through his phone call with the Ukrainian president, um, President Trump actually committed a crime. Yeah. Let's, let's get to that in a minute. Okay. Uh, I, before we get into the details of this current controversy, I wanted to kind of sort of set so the general parameters right, right. here. So what about this, Joe? How do you understand high, well, high crimes, crimes and misdemeanors? High crimes and actually did have a very clear meaning back then. It's what you said, that they didn't want a monarch, but they needed a strong president. And so they had to find, you know, sort of stumble around and find analogous models. And the model for them was the minister, somebody who is doing the bidding of the monarch but doesn't have the absolute privilege that a monarch has. And the high crimes and misdemeanors was used in British common law to say somebody who's not doing their job well or who's doing it so egregiously or self-interestedly that the people need to remove him. And so the, the concept of impeachment comes precisely from that kind of context, that high crimes and misdemeanors are, this person's doing an awful job and needs to get out of there, and this is our only recourse is to remove them. And so that's the model, and there's a pretty clear model. It's just, as, as Adam said, we have a legalistic culture, and what has happened is most people look for vagary in the language even when the intent is clear. And I think this is a case of that. We all know what this means. Everybody on every side knows what it means. It just serves our political interest to pretend that there's a hole there. I might say uh, 
what's involved here is abuse of power. Yeah, exactly. Someone, someone who takes the power of the presidency, uh, let's say, uh, to enrich himself, uh, that certainly would be impeachable, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily have to commit bribery or treason to that. He might just manipulate things so that he comes out of the presidency richer than when he goes in, and outside observers could say that's abusing power. Yeah, Alexander Hamilton, arguably my least favorite framer, the guy, the guy who embraced an expansive power of the presidency uh, and, and compromised as he went but started with that. In Federal 65 states exactly what you just said, that you know we need this so that we can remove somebody who is using the job in a way that either violates the public trust, violates the oath of office, or is aggrandizing themselves. And so, yeah, that's exactly what impeachment was intended to do. There's no, there's no vagueness here. And, and it might not be anything illegal in it. Oh, no, there's absolutely, illegality is, is completely immaterial in impeachment, in my view. But the alternative argument to that is that for the sorts of things that the two of you are talking about, you know, just sort of, abuse of power or just betraying the trust of the American people and so on and so forth. We have another mechanism for removing people from office for those kinds of things, right? And that mechanism is elections, right? No, and presidents serve. No. 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 no, I That's disagree. Just, I mean, there, are fo there were folks in the Constitutional Convention who actually argued that the whole process of impeachment wasn't necessary. That's right. And they lost. Because presidents serve limited terms. Yeah, it, but and they, they lost. You're right. And so if you take the, the final result as the framers compromised, it, there was a consensus that elections weren't the only way to remove presidents. That's true. That perspective did win out. You are right, though, that there are, I mean, it's being used in part because you know, the reality is if you're going to defend the president, you have to pick your best argument. There aren't a whole lot of arguments to choose from. And so you're going to pick the best one possible. And that is defining this in legal terms. It's probably the best shot they have at making a compelling case to the American people that removal is not appropriate. Right. So one of my sources that I was reading and preparing for today's podcast says that in American history, there have been 18 impeachment trials before the Senate. Uh, only two involving presidents, Andrew Johnson in 1867 and then uh, Bill Clinton's impeachment trial in 1997. Uh, Richard Nixon was never formally impeached, though he certainly would have been had he stayed in office. He resigned before he was impeached. So we have this history. Now, obviously, most of those other impeachments involved, um, many of them federal judges right. who were impeached for various causes. And in many cases, and in fact, in most, I think a majority of those impeachment trials in the Senate, the, pe the people are not convicted, just like in the two presidential instances. Okay, so, so how, how can we explain that, that impeachments seem to happen historically, but in the end, the president isn't removed from office? Didn't happen to Clinton and didn't happen to Andrew Johnson. So I do think historically impeachment has been seen as extraordinary. Um, and it took someone who was probably, until recently, the most disliked internally within Washington president, Andrew Johnson, for them to finally say enough, and we, we've got to get rid of him. Um, but I do think what we're seeing is we're kind of in this period where this presidency really is not tenable in this constitutional system particularly with the collapse of parties as being the major structuring principle in elections. And so we get presidents elected from one party and Congress controlled by another party, and that tends to up the institutional conflict, but not in, not in the way that the framers envisioned, where Congress would be fighting against the chief executive, but the Democrats who may control one chamber is now fighting against the Republicans who control the other institution. And so I think what we're seeing is the decay in the constitutional order. And I, you know, I think we're in this 50-year rolling constitutional crisis, and that's why we've had three impeachments or near impeachments in the past, in my lifetime. Um, and that's extraordinary. I think it's an indication of real stress on the Constitution. Right. So maybe we should get into the current case so we can sort of explore those stresses, you know, in a very concrete way, looking at what's happening here. So uh, let's, let's talk about uh, what's involved here. 
What exactly are the reasons that the House opened this impeachment inquiry? Somebody want to go into the details of the whole Ukrainian mess? Okay. I mean, there's a lot of details here, and, and I think most people are who are listening to this podcast are probably familiar with the basics of them, right? But in essence, the charge is that the president and his advisors um, engaged in a pressure campaign um, to, to try to extort the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian president to dig up dirt on President Trump's likely rival in the 2020 presidential contest, Joe Biden. Um, and that essentially doing so is a tremendous abuse of power that um, jeopardized national security on top of just the American people's trust in the political system and the presidency. Yeah, so let, let's talk about that some more. Let's, let's sort of flush that out a bit. So the charge is that President Trump uh, essentially told the Ukrainians, uh, you have to investigate Joe Biden, or you're not going to get this military aid. Uh, the president, the president of Ukraine, wasn't going to get invited to the White House. Uh, so that's so that's the so-called uh, quid pro quo. I'm sorry to or bribe. If you uh, want to well, use you want to use another legal term, it's bribery. Okay, uh, but it's not bribery of the president. The president's right. trying to bribe the Ukrainian. The president trying to bribe. He's trying to get some value. Yeah, it's from the so he's the mobster, Ukrainian. not so, the not the victim. Right. So what's the argument? that that is impeachable conduct. What, what can we say about that to say that that justifies an impeachment process? In what ways is this, as you mentioned, Adam, abuse of power or something? Well, for one thing, it's, it would appear to be a direct attempt to enlist a foreign government in the conduct of our domestic politics and our domestic elections, right? And I think most people would say that that in of itself is, is extremely inappropriate, that foreign governments should not be involved in our domestic elections, and that the President of the United States should certainly not seek assistance from a foreign government for his own domestic political purposes. And the framers themselves are very concerned about presidents uh, doing something at the behest of a foreign government or involving foreign governments in, in our politics, right? Right. I mean, you can, you can see evidence of that throughout the Federalist Papers and, and throughout the debates in the Constitutional Convention. Um, so in that sense, this is clearly something that the founders envisioned and wanted to avoid, potentially through the impeachment clause. Joe, anything else? If this is not something that is deeply offensive to a self-governing country, I think it's time for us to hang up our world leadership. And again, this is not a, said in terms of a partisan way. This is really a very serious breach of the oath of office. That, and I would say that the, the case can be made that if it turns out that there's a clear exchange, um, th that there's a violation of the oath of office. And that alone is grounds for impeachment. Yeah, and, and how so? How, how so? I shall, you know, the president pledges to uphold, protect, defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to the best of my ability, fulfill the oath of office. And the language is fairly clear. I don't have it right here, but, you know, you do in your pocket Constitution, uh, and I encourage you all to go read it. But I think the other reason it's so foundational is that, you know, if you go back and read George Washington's second inaugural address, which was very, very brief, he basically gets up and says, I'm taking this oath, I've taken this oath, but if I do anything that brings dishonor on this office, I want you to get rid of me. And so he basically threw the gauntlet down and said, look, it's not just following the letter of the law. It's following the spirit of the law. And, you know, the spirit of the law here is the president does the bidding of the people, not the bidding of himself or herself. And I guess in this case, the, the national security aspect looms large, right? That, that clearly uh, Ukraine is a very important place in terms of uh, our confrontation with, with Russia Russia has sent troops into eastern Ukraine, that there's a war going on, and essentially, if, if the allegations are true, 
uh, Trump was, was basically interfering in the ability of the Ukraine uh, and in, in the ability of the United States to exercise a foreign policy to resist the Russian incursions into Ukraine, which, which has been American policy there, right? That we, we want Absolutely. Ukraine to be a strong government to resist Russian encroachments. And uh, if he was using that as a bargaining chip, that really undermines a, a basic uh, tenet of American foreign policy. Yeah, and I also think it's very important to understand that I know we're trying to nail down where is the exact precise location of the egregious violation that warrants impeachment. And remember, there's a difference between impeachment and removal. Um, impeachment is saying you did something really wrong, and removal is, is that transgression so bad that we have to get rid of you? And so this is phase one, and I think clearly this kind of behavior is important, but I think it's also really important for this president because of the problem of boundary crossing. That how many times has President Trump broken down the norms? And at what point do we say enough? And I think when it comes to national security policy and foreign policy and the U.S.'s position as, with allies, I think that that probably is another reason why there's a good case to be made that this is that line over which he has stepped that is too far. So, so what's the defense of Trump here? What, what, we, I think we've laid out pretty well the arguments of those people who say that the impeachment is justified. Uh, what, what argument could you make on the other side to say this is, this is not something that should justify impeachment? Well, here's the argument I would make if I were Trump's attorneys um, and trying to get my client not removed. I, you know, I, I'd assume impeachment's going to happen because, again, it's a political process and the Democrats control that decision. But then in the and, Senate— and mentioned attorneys. I think we need to make clear that if this goes to the Senate where there will be a trial, although the Senate— controls exactly what the rules are, uh, in the past, uh, the president has representation. He, 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 can have, has legal representation. he can have an attorney who is, in fact, going to make an argument That's on exactly. his behalf. So here's the argument I would make. It's like, look, he was elected as an outsider to shake things up. This is a guy who's used to working in the business sector. The guy in the business sector uses lots of bluster, a lot of intimidation, lots of manipulation, lots of threats. Um, and so he was simply doing what he does normally and how he's learned how to succeed. There was no intent here to bribe or extort. It was simply Donald Trump being Donald Trump, and he was elected by the American people, at least the Electoral College elected him. Um, he has 65 million people who voted for him, and they knew what they were getting. They were getting a guy who was going to do things differently. And it doesn't necessarily warrant removal, in part because this, this is Donald Trump. You should expect him to behave that way. You elected him. You, you have to live with this. And that's kind of the defense I would make. Is that kind of the incompetence defense that uh, I think I Lindsey 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 I think, I think that the, right so Lindsey Graham had made this comment that no, they're no, no, flirting no, no, no. Lindsey Graham no 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 this is more this is what we elected this is no different than everything else he's done and the way he's done it um, and so I appeal to you to say yeah we don't like it but and Lindsey Graham's argument was so much more invidious than that. His was actually intellectually you know, dishonest. You get that on the table. His argument was that the, the, the president in the White House was, was too basically incompetent and uh, to, to ever actually right. carry out. Right. And I don't think my argument of, assumes incompetence. I, right. I think, I mean, I think there, we're going to see elements of the argument that Joe laid out, and I think we're going to see elements of the uh, Lindsey Graham argument. But I expect that the main argument that Republicans make from this point forward is going to be a little different. I think that most Republicans are going to say one of two things. Um, some of them are going to try to shift the blame for all of this away from Trump and toward his underlings, folks like Rudy Giuliani and so forth. They're going to say that Trump wasn't directly involved in the pressure campaign or in the decision to wage a pressure campaign. And I think 
where that falls flat, other folks are gonna basically say that, you know, essentially there's really nothing fundamentally wrong with this. The president has a right to execute his foreign policy. It's entirely legitimate to um, withhold foreign aid to try to root out corruption in a country that is supposed to be our ally. And, and it is absolutely true that the Ukrainian government has historically been beset by corruption. Um, and that this is essentially what Joe Biden was trying to do a few years ago as vice president. And this is essentially what presidents and other leading foreign, foreign policy officials, secretaries of state and so forth have been doing since time immemorial. And that there's nothing fundamentally wrong here, even if the president would have enjoyed this ancillary benefit of having you know, the Ukrainian government announce that they were um, investigating his political opponent. And the last so thing that, I so think- so, so, so that's like putting a little, just a little different spin on the facts. Right. That it's not really trying to dig up dirt on an opponent. It's about concern about corruption in general and if dirt on his opponent uh, comes out as a result, fine and good, but that's not the president's central aim. That's the argument they're going to make. That's the argument they're going to make. And I do think, in addition to that, you are going to hear more and more um, the argument that harkens back to um, the original sort of debate about the impeachment clause that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, which is this is not what President Trump did is not a crime. It's not a violation of the criminal code. Um, and a president should not be impeached and removed from office unless he's committed a crime. And by the way, when Republicans say that, they are you know, being fairly consistent if you, if you consider the Bill Clinton impeachment of 1998, right? When he was impeached, right, the Republicans in the House who led his impeachment drive said, we're impeaching Bill Clinton because he committed a crime, because he perjured himself and because he obstructed justice, right? And so those same Republicans, um, including Lindsey Graham, um, who was one of the House impeachment managers back then, can now say, show me the evidence that President Trump committed a crime. Um, and if you can show me that he committed a felony, then I'll consider removing him from office. So um, let's talk then a little bit about the process at this point. We're going to have these open hearings. Maybe we should discuss that a little bit. There was some controversy about the Republicans were criticizing the Democrats for holding hearings in secret with some of these witnesses. And by the way, before we get to that, maybe we should talk a little bit about the, the character of the witnesses who have testified. Uh, most of them have been essentially civil servants. The White House has taken a position uh, that no one should testify. They've basically issued a blanket order that nobody in the administration should cooperate with the impeachment inquiry. But a number of individuals, largely foreign service officers, have ignored that uh, directive and have testified anyway. But they also seem to be people who have not necessarily had direct discussions with Trump about this, right? So, so that's maybe a weakness in the Democrats' case. Well, I do think you're right that everybody who has gone before the House down into the skiff for whatever reason, you know, I, mean, I know they didn't, they want to keep it secret, but using a, the skiff facility as it's called, um, it, that seems to me a bit of overdramatic. But I, I think the people who went and testified do indeed have obligations beyond loyalty to the president, that they have sworn obligations as civil servants to serve the public, to serve the interests of their organization in ways that White House staffers don't. Anyone in the White House serves at the pleasure of the president, and if the president wants them out, they're out. And so the president is their clear and only boss, the principal, so to speak. People who work in the civil service actually have multiple principles. They're, they're just as accountable to Congress as they are to the president. And so they have these, this divided obligation, and that, that probably explains why those people are testifying even when there's this unreasonable blanket order that is so clearly not constitutional um, that the president has issued on virtually everybody, including one of Rudy Giuliani's friends. He's not even a government official. I mean, <laughs> he said Giuliani shouldn't be called, and he's not even in the government. That's right. right. Um, you know, the, this claim of executive privilege is ridiculous on its face from a constitutional law perspective. That, that's the claim that uh, his lawyer, Pat Cipollini, made in this letter, which is very broad and says this is an illegitimate process and nobody should cooperate 
with it. Yeah, um, and, and most lawyers who know the material sort of dismiss that memo out of hand as being essentially a legal version of, of the president's Twitter feed. Well, and at, at this point, um, much of the arguments that Cipollini made in that letter are moot, right? Because Cipollini claimed that the process was illegitimate because the House had never formally voted to authorize the impeachment inquiry. And now the House has. And so a core element of that argument is no longer in place. But nevertheless, there's a lot of material that could be of value in throwing light on exactly what happened which is being denied to the Congress, uh, to the House, right? Absolutely. I mean, there are all kinds of documents that the president has re refused to provide. Uh, there are uh, officials who did have direct discussions with the president who uh, have, have refused to comply with a request to appear or even to comply with subpoenas from the House. W what should we think about that, this sort of refusal to, to cooperate? with Congress. I'm holding up three fingers. The, what you're talking about is the third of the three likely articles of impeachment. One is the act itself and its corrupt intent. The second is the obstruction and the cover-up. And then the third is the failure to comply with the congressional subpoenas in a timely fashion. And so that's likely to be one of the three articles of impeachment. I don't think that the Senate is going to, you know, remove on that basis. But that's clearly one of the things that has brought President Trump to the brink of impeachment. Yeah, my guess is we won't be hearing from most of those people for the simple reason that um, Democrats are operating on a fairly tight timetable here. They want to get this done soon. They want, I think they probably want to impeach within the next month or so. Um, they don't want this process dragging out into the 2020 presidential election year. And so it would appear that trying to force some of these folks to testify would require courts to get involved all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and that would be a process that would take a long time. And my guess is this whole thing will end before the Supreme Court um, renders a final decision on whether the claims of executive privilege that folks like Mulvaney are making are, are valid. And if that happens, all the suits in court become moot, right? That, uh, so the court will probably just dismiss them and say, you know, this, this matter is over. There's right. no case. reason why. That's right. There's right. no case. Which, in a way, might be a good thing, because as some of my research informed me, uh, the Supreme Court has never made a judgment on uh, the extent to which the president's executive privilege allows him to deny information to the Congress. And if the Supreme Court is forced to take that issue up, uh, it would be, uh, in terms of your concerns about expansive presidential power, Joe, they might come down on the side of the executive here, which would open up the possibility of a great increase in the power of the executive. I agree. I think there are five votes on the Supreme Court for the unitary executive theory. Um, it's not clear how what is far. The unitary executive theory, the unitary executive theory is that the vesting clause of Article Two vests all executive authority in the president. So the mere action of a president sh cannot be questioned. So they can do whatever they want, and you can't really question whether th that's appropriate because all that power is vested in the executive. That was something that John Roberts and Samuel Alito worked on when they worked in the White House under Reagan and the first President Bush. Uh, and, you know, Neil Gorsuch pre pretty clearly agrees with that, as does Clarence Thomas. It's a little less certain where Kavanaugh sits on this. But it's, it's pretty clear as, as a member of the Federalist Society, which has been using the unitary executive as one of its uh, agendas related to the presidency, that, you know, yeah, the Supreme Court is likely to expand, not contract presidential power, which is yet another argument for why the Supreme Court is not the least dangerous branch. In fact, they may be the most dangerous. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I do think there are probably five votes on the Supreme Court right now f um, for the purpose of expanding executive privilege to uh, against congressional subpoenas. But I also think that there are that a majority of the Supreme Court would rather not hear this case right now, even though they may well end up having to. I mean, I, I would think that they would rather just not get involved. Right. And, and that may, may in fact happen. 
so let's talk about the politics of this a little bit. So uh, let's assume that the House does vote impeachment, although that's not guaranteed, right? Adam, I think you've, you're somewhat skeptical that, in fact, they will vote articles of impeachment in the end. Right. So in, in the past, I was, um, and I still think there's an outside chance that they won't. Um, the, the reason I was initially skeptical that they would, when Nancy Pelosi indicated that she supported the opening up of an impeachment inquiry, was simply because at that point, she didn't have the full House vote on authorizing it. And I thought that was strange, because this is, as the Republicans correctly said, what you know the House had done in the past. Um, and my guess is that the reason she didn't do that was because she did not want to put her more squeamish members from the swing districts um, on the record as supporting um, either, you know, theoretically or, you know, in practice, um, the impeachment of the president. Having said that, the House has actually now voted to authorize this inquiry. And my guess is that almost all of the Democrats that voted to um, authorize the inquiry will eventually um, also vote to impeach. So I, I do expect that it'll happen. And then it goes to the Senate, where it looks like Trump will be acquitted, probably fairly easily. One thing, in order to convict, two-thirds of the Senate have to vote to convict, right? That would require all the Democrats and about 20 Republican senators. Right. right. I, I mean, I, the chances of that happening seem to me to be slim to none. I mean, all of the Republican senators, except three, I believe, recently signed on to this letter that the Senate Republicans wrote to Speaker Pelosi criticizing the process of the impeachment inquiry. Right. That, that doesn't mean that they're not on board with um, the House Democrats in regards to the substance. Uh, but I suspect that you know, if those people are already on record criticizing the way this whole process is occurring, I cannot imagine that they will vote to convict in the end. Um, and so I think the chances of, you know, an actual conviction in the Senate occurring are extremely, extremely slim. And so what's, what's the meaning? I mean, what's the point of this? What does this accomplish for, say, the Democrats or for the country to go through this process. Well, I want to go back to what I said, that impeachment and removal are two separate things, that actions that warrant impeachment don't necessarily warrant removal. And I would argue that Bill Clinton brought impeachment on himself by his actions, but that the Senate had the wisdom to say, but these actions don't warrant removal. Um, but we're kind of glad that we had to say that because this guy did a really bad thing. So sort of the public shaming uh, of the president that comes from impeachment and the historical shaming that comes with it, I think is a very significant thing. It's not trivial and it shouldn't be dismissed as, as being unimportant, even if it's a foregone conclusion. The other thing I'd have to say is that, yeah, right now there's less than a one-tenth of one percent chance of the Senate removing the, the president. But the reality is it's not going to change until it does change. And we haven't reached that point. President Trump is working awfully hard to offend a bunch of Republicans in the Senate right now by refusing to even listen to their arguments saying, stop trying to defend me. It was a perfect call. Um, and that shows a little bit of self-destructiveness that's not unlike Richard Nixon. And so maybe he may just make it happen, even though it's not going to. So there may be enough Republicans who would just be uh, offended by his actions to take the risk of voting against him. Yeah, I mean, I, I highly doubt that. But let's just say Anonymous, the, the person whose book is coming out this week, comes out and it turns out to be Ivanka. <laughs> I think that would change the mind of a lot of senators. Or Kellyanne Conway. Well, Kellyanne Conway my, may not change as many senators' minds, but let's just say it was Jared or Ivanka or somebody, you know, or maybe even Melania, somebody in the Trump family saying, yeah, we're trying to save our, the country from our dad. That, I think that would change minds. But I, I think short of that, it's not likely. So, uh, so what's going to be the impact Politically, the Democrats. I mean, essentially, uh, what, we, what we've seen so far is that the public seems to be uh, evaluating this process in very partisan terms. You have a majority of Democrats who definitely are in favor of impeachment. The Republicans are opposed. The overall public opinion polls 
show but a, a slight majority favoring the impeachment process, but so far no polls are saying the president should be removed from office, right? Uh, yeah, on that question, the public is split almost down the middle um, on whether the president should be impeached and removed from office. I think what's important to bear in mind here is that you, the, the effect of this whole impeachment process might be magnified by the fact that we are such a closely divided country and that as a result, small shifts in a small number of states could um, end up mattering in terms of the upcoming presidential election, right? So I always tell this to my students. If you look at the 2016 presidential election results and compare them to the 2012 presidential election results, they look almost identical in terms of the voting patterns of different demographic groups and so forth. Um, the, the difference between the overall result was entirely due to a small shift among a small number of voters in a small number of states. And so I think what's instructive right now is to look at support for impeachment in those states that are likely to be battlegrounds next year. And there was, there was an interesting poll that came out from Siena last week that showed that support for impeachment in the battleground states is considerably lower um, than it is in the nation at large. And that I believe, uh, you know, over half of uh, respondents in the battleground states are opposed to impeachment at this point. So if in fact, Trump is impeached and then acquitted in the Senate, that might actually help him in the, among, with those voters, right? Potentially, yeah. Although, you know, much depends on what happens from this point forward. You know, I, I think... Um, the, Joe's shaking his head. Well, the, well, the different... The different respect, respectfully dissent. <laughs> well, so what's your dissent, Chuck? Well, I think that the interesting irony here is that Trump's attempt to undermine the Biden campaign for different reasons, seems to be working. But the effect is it's going to probably nominate a Democrat who has a better shot at beating Trump than Biden would have. And I know that that's counter to conventional wisdom. So the funny thing here is I think an acquittal seals the faith on Trump's prospects if Biden doesn't get the nomination. If Biden gets the nomination, then it's, oh, yet another version of Hillary Clinton running against me, the outsider, trying to drain the swamp. Um, but if Biden fades and someone like Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar uh, takes the mantle, these are not people who can be painted that way. And I actually think that hurts Trump in the very states where the battleground polls do show that they oppose impeachment. That's possible. I guess I just think that as long as Democrats nominate somebody who's not totally objectionable um, that the next year's election will be fundamentally a referendum on Trump. And so, you know, if enough of the independent voters in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and so forth, think that he's getting a raw deal out of this impeachment process, that he's being treated unfairly, um, that uh, the Democrats are impeaching him over, you know, something that is, you know, largely insignificant and so forth. You know, I don't know how that plays out next year, but it could potentially play out in his favor. Although, Adam, the, the polls that show a majority are opposed to impeachment doesn't mean that they also think Trump is being treated unfairly. There are lots of reasons why they might be opposed to it. That's true. And, and in fairness, a majority, of, a majority of voters in those swing states do favor the impeachment inquiry. Um, they just don't favor And I would go one impeaching. step further that the public phase of this impeachment proceeding will make it more widely known what those of us who pay a lot of attention already know. And that is there was a very clear message that was systematically sent out and they subverted the usual diplomatic process to do it. I think there are a lot of people who don't understand how obviously inappropriate this action was and that's gonna hurt them in a public trial. Yeah, and the, the Democrats seem to be counting on that, right? With the open hearings, the, the, they think that these sort of very high-minded civil, you know, State Department foreign service officers who, who are obviously patriotic Americans getting up and describing the president and the people around the president as engaged in this illicit process will somehow so resonate, will res, will resonate with the public somehow. 
Bill, you just activated the civic Republican in me that harkens back to your last conversation with Rick Battistone. The notion that Congress should do anything other than the appropriate thing for the people and the government of the United States is the problem with our political system. I don't want Trump impeached because I don't like him. Um, I, I think the only reason he should be impeached and removed is if he violated the trust of the American people as written in the Constitution and practiced by the president. And, you know, if he's innocent of that, he shouldn't be removed. So for me, Congress needs to do its job and not worry about the political calculations. Although we can be certain that this process will remain highly partisan. I think that is a pretty and, much a certainty. Yeah. And, and let me quote a founding father on the issue. Uh, in, in his Federalist Number 65, Alexander Hamilton foresaw the partisan character of impeachment, where he says, it will connect itself with the pre-existing factions or parties and will enlist all their animosities, partialities, influence, and interest on one side or on the other. And I think we can imagine that that's going to happen. It already has, and it's going to continue to happen uh, in this process. I think that's right. Any final wisdom, uh, Joe, Adam? I would say that the framers were humans, and they designed a really amazing political system that has lasted. But a lot of the mechanisms that kept it maintained are declining. And the, what we're seeing with the polarization on impeachment is exactly the problem, that we need to start thinking like an Americans we're going to pass this on to our great-grandchildren, not just our grandchildren. Uh, and I just, you know, I wish that Congress, but I also wish that all of us would think about this in terms of how does this affect the country and then behave using conscience rather than political calculations. <laughs> I don't know how, what I can add to that. That seems to me to be starting yet another podcast episode, so I think I won't go there. And I, I'll just say I agree with my senior colleague. Right. Well, well, well said, Joe. Thanks so much, Joe and Adam, for engaging in this uh, very interesting discussion, and we'll see what happens uh, as the impeachment moves forward. Uh, maybe we'll get back together in a few weeks after this thing all plays out and, and talk about it some more. Sounds okay. great. Thanks. So thanks again to Beyond the News Feed's production assistant, Reagan Wind, PC class of 2020, who is here working ably, uh, making us sound beautiful over these uh, microphones here in Achino 209, a great studio. And we continue to be grateful to Joe Carr and the marketing communications staff for their support. And most of all, thanks to those of you who are our listeners and subscribers please tell four friends to subscribe to Beyond Your News Feed. Thanks very much. <laughs>